Hello and welcome to Dear Gardener with me, Ben Dark. These are stories from a strange week. I've been back in the UK for my father's funeral, which was a pretty joyous event, all told. We sent him off very well with 300 people, a full church, a video link to a full village hall as well. So I was pleased about that, but obviously incredibly sad. The garden there is such a him place. It's such a place of of memory. It's him in the fact that it's extravagant and disheveled. He was really into meadows and vast great big leaves. He loved that Japanese butter bear, the pestices with the huge great leaves. And he loved his banana that I bought him as a wedding gift. A wedding gift for my wedding. I bought him a, a, a banana that summer, which would have been six years ago now, and has been growing and growing and getting bigger and bigger and better and better up until last winter and that plummet down from a relatively mild November, start of December, into that shocking, shocking cold and snow when it was cut, cut with a great big frosty knife. And Dad thought it had died and was certain it was as he was ailing himself through spring but he was around long enough to see it emerge triumphant great big rollers of leaves coming out like like otherworldly green green cigars or or conical joints that you might have rolled when you're at university it was really really good to see and he got to see that so his banana lives on i've been doing some work when i was back as well i went up to the Garden Museum's Literary Festival at Parham House, an incredibly beautiful place nestled down in Sussex in 850 acres of private Deer Park. A Deer Park which was very tricky to find roots through. I went to go and look at some of the massive trees and found that there were untouched bracken and bramble everywhere. I'm so used to my visits to deer parks being here in the, the Deerhoe in, in Copenhagen or say on Richmond Park or even, even in Petworth Park where people go and wander and their whims take them to the places that I want to go before I've got there. There's always a path to where I want to see. Here there were no such things and it felt slightly rude to go bashing and crashing my way and creating new parks, sorry, new paths rather, where I wanted to see a particular trunk. I had to do it because I chose to run to the festival from the, the place I was staying, a little pub, and I didn't really want to arrive in the green room to, to meet my fellow speakers completely covered and plastered down with sweat. So I had to go and find somewhere in the woods to, to go and change into shiny shoes and smart trousers. So I did take a little detour through these mosquito-y tick-filled woodlands to some of the greatest oak trees I have ever seen. It's a real reminder of life before forestry cleanup teams and how we as, as humans in this pasture forest walk among the skeletons of giant beasts. I was thinking as I passed these leviathan-like shattered trees. How could you not believe 
that the lightning that brought them down, the wind that brought them down, was not divine, was not the the intervention of some great cloud dwelling him or her. So that was that was nice to see. The talk went well. I was up against the car park, the last talk of the day, and speaking at the same time as Shane Connolly, the the florist to the royals and, and to everyone else, was speaking in a great big tent on the lawn about the flowers for the coronation and making ties with Constance Spry. And Constance Spry is such an interesting character in her own right. And you had royalty and you had celebrity. And of course his was the biggest draw. But I got a I got a good a good number of people and, and hopefully some of them are listening to this because certainly they said that they listened. So thank you very much for coming me coming to see me and, and Wesley talk about the Grove. I hope that there were elements of the talk that were new and fresh to to people who had read the book before. It's wonderful re-engaging with the text uh, a year, well, two years after I wrote it, and finding bits that I'd forgotten that I'd written, and bits that I've been thinking about obviously since, and have developed my thinking on. It was was really interesting to, to come back to that. I also talked about it in Birmingham, where I focused on the... Rabina Benariensis part particularly because I'd just been on the RHS podcast talking <laughs> talking about the same thing, the way that Rabina Benariensis can be used to meld together divergent styles of garden, divergent bits of gardening. It's a theme that I'm going to be developing over the next month or so for a lecture that I'm giving in early September for the Gardens Trust on head gardeners and their relationship with their clients. I can't remember what I titled the lecture, but I think it is going to be something like Great Virtue and Monstrous Eccentricity or Monstrous Ego, Monstrous Intervention, something like that, something that that really plays upon that very, very strange relationship that we head gardeners have with our employer. We are essentially servants, but servants with such power over our dominion that we that we feel differently maybe from from butlers from chauffeurs we are more inclined to get out the the stick and wrap away the hands of our employer when they start meddling so i'm going to develop the the story of the head gardener over 200 years or so for the gardens trust i'll I'll post a link somewhere so that you can find out tickets to that it's going to be an online lecture anyway the the talks that i saw at the literary festival that weren't mine were pretty good i saw robin lane fox doing the robin lane fox show he is always entertaining always controversial always slightly offensive a a man who takes pleasure in the ossification of his his views and he was doing his normal highbrow mixed with lustful satire act, a sort of otherworldly intelligence in the classics and an earthy love for for women and plants. He's very influenced by D.H. Lawrence, I could tell he mentioned him a couple of times, particularly the, the line where Melus has the lady Chatterley in his game shed. 
and the comparisons of her skin to various roses. But he was best when he was being incredibly cruel about a poem written by an Oxford colleague tearing apart a flower poem about tulips for its inaccuracies, for the fact that the flower had been made to bend to the will of the poet and do things that it would never have done, twisting and writhing in the vase. Well, tulip stems don't do that. He's quite right. The, the ultimate writhing stem is the ranunculus. The ranunculus is the flower if you want to see something strain and wiggle and almost behave like a snake looking for its way out of your living room, looking for its way off the table and back into the garden. They're great for that. But he was, he was very, very enjoyable. And I think it is important that we write with accuracy about our plants. He held up Vita Sackville West as the ultimate example of a person who could write and tell you something that you'd always known but somehow never expressed, which I think is something that I, I strive towards in my own writing, almost certainly unsuccessfully. The other talk that I enjoyed was from Christopher Woodward, who is always entertaining. Again, another worldly presence on stage. Uh, sorry, another worldly presence on stage. He was talking about um, swimming pools, along with a Monsieur de Mowbray, who was talking about the castle gardens, of which she, she wrote a book about. And they were both quite dreamy and discursive, linking together strange ideas and theories. Best line of it all was from a Monsieur, something along the lines of, well, when you have a castle and a moat, your garden really doesn't need to be too extravagant. Very true, very true. That can be your first <laughs> horticultural tip from the episode. I also went round the gardens, had a tour with the head gardener, which was interesting and worrying because you realise how your reputation as a gardener hangs around for years after you've left a place. In any work of life, I suppose it's true. If you balls up in a company, if you are the one who gets everyone charged with fraud, then your reputation remains. But I kind of thought it wouldn't really happen in gardening. Once you've left the flower beds, once you've left the borders, you think that there things end. But actually, this talk involved long discussions on predecessors, named predecessors and what they'd done and whether they hadn't. And there were other people I was talking to, I won't name the people or the gardens that they were talking about, but they were talking about, well, so-and-so really let this one run down. Oh, well, I, I, I didn't think that this person took control of that one. And you realise, oh, no, I can't, I can't escape it. I can't escape it. I can always be the person who ruined X, Y and Z garden. Having said which... I mean, ruining is a subjective concept. Robin Lane Fox talked about Sissinghurst's ruin. Of course, they're ruining Sissinghurst now. Other people are absolutely delighted with the direction it's heading in. So I'm sure, I'm sure I shouldn't be too concerned about it. But gosh, what a reputation to, to have the person who allowed the work of four generations, five generations, five centuries to, to be consumed, to be eaten. By, by weeds and neglect. Uh, 
I also went up to visit Upark on the top of the South Downs. It is a hell of a cycle ride straight up that hill from South Harding. Upark is a very interesting house. I think it is probably, I think it's a 17th century little house, but it's had quite a lot of reptoning to it, quite a lot of Humpty Repton messing around. You can really see in the, the Grand Lawn now given over to to meadow with just a great big copper beach in the middle of it but then at the back of the house the squiggling squirling serpentine figure very eightish plaths with great herbaceous border behind them very very garden-esque if we're going to use loudon's term for repton and there were some really nice plants in those herbaceous borders i particularly liked the thalictrum flavor which is a really lovely shade of soft and welcoming yellow. It is the, the yellow of a very expensive soft toy bought from, from John Lewis, maybe, which goes with everything, particularly with the plant's own fairly glaucous foliage. This is meadow rue. That was what you'd know it as. And it has a, a glaucous, almost rue-like foliage and it sits so happily high in a border chest height to me and there just worked as a reminder that yellow is fine yellow is our friend in the garden I'm not an anti-yellow gardener but sometimes at this time of year particularly in old herbaceous borders that have come to rely a little bit too much on Lysimachia, Lysimachia vulgaris particularly, but also punctata, which I, I think is a, it's a different and harder yellow. It is a muddied yellow. It looks like a, a stained sou'wester on a crew coming back from, from sea where there's been engine trouble. They've had to, they've had to get oil on their, on their yellow oil skins. And it's just not a particularly good yellow. But the other bits of the border were just good herbaceous blocking. Well looked after. I imagine there's quite a lot of the gardeners, uh, our volunteer gardeners there. It was looking really, really, really nice out there. The other interesting thing about that place was that it has a turning circle outside in one of the most architecturally important bits of the house. It has a turning circle in front of a portico, which was added by Repton. The portico itself was wonderful because it's all flaking and falling off and I wasn't sure if the things falling off it were lichen or whether this was an ancient wash. I think it was just that covered in lichen that it had begun to, to fall off as if it were an ancient bit of horsehair plaster coming away from a, from a wattle and daubed wall. Anyway, in front of this is a turning circle as one must have in one's grand country house. And that has been planted entirely with Hylotelephium, with the plant that used to be Sedum, Sedum spectabile, the Hylotelephium spectabile. It's a very simple, very architectural treatment that worked really very, very well. I think that there is some importance in monocultural plantings. The temptation with a circle like that would be to do something very, very grand, very all seasons, a bit of fluff, a bit of spectacle, to use it almost as a as a as a pot with a great display in it. But there, just one plant which will go from that 
slightly seabed green to to come into flower in a few weeks time was really very effective i think next to houses such as that there is some call for restraint i found it quite hard looking at the big yew sorry it's not yew it's box plantation at at Upwork House, all around the house, there's obviously box hedges that have grown out at some point, and they have been turned into these big sculptural blobs, almost like the the yew tumps that they have at Palace Castle, those great big elephantine blobs. Here they're not elephantine, they're more uh, hippoine. They are more pygmy hippo. I don't know what the, the adjective for hippo-like is. Hippostrine? I don't know. Anyway, they're more hippo-like in size, shape and elegance. And I don't think they quite work against the house. I think they should either be clipped hedge or they should be allowed to grow out into small trees and make the place even more romantic. That's a very personal opinion. If you were the person who, who decided to clip them like that, I'm certain everyone else absolutely adores them. But for me, I think I'd have liked to see them a little straighter near the house or just gone gone fully out of control and and romantic wild much like much like Powers Castle used to look like before the Victorians tumped those ewes they went for a, a stage in the, the picturesque days where they were grown out into full trees and the whole thing looked far more Bram Stokerish far more wild far more prisoner of Zender I'm sure Amicia or the Mowbray would would agree that when you have a Powers Castle you don't necessarily need to do all of that all of that clipping anyway that that's my thought on it I'm sure it will change because I can't see them looking after that box for long I can't see them having the resources to to keep it all free from from the moth so maybe there will be a time for a rethink a time for a restructure and they can restructure the cafe while they're there because well you know about you know about National Trust cafes <laughs> Anyway, in my gardening life, now back here in Copenhagen, I finally rigged up the strings for my tomatoes. Rigged them up from just under the second story windows, just by a wasp's nest where I was putting this tensioned wire, the kind of wire you use to prune a, sorry, to train a vine, where you can twist it to, to keep tension on at all times. And I strung one of those across the house, just next to this, this very active wasp nest. I didn't really want to bother the wasps. I didn't really want to spray a load of powder onto them because they're good things, wasps. They're nice in the garden. They're an essential part of the garden's life. At the moment, they're in prime insect flesh devouring mode. They're out there gobbling up aphids and things. So I wanted them to stay. So I had to wait until they were basically falling asleep on quite a cold and blustery evening before getting up onto the ladder, stringing my wires letting strings down for the tomatoes to climb up and twisting them around so they may support themselves. It's quite an attractive structure I've made with the zigzags of string coming down and these little tomato plants desperately climbing up to meet the wasps. Hopefully the, the harvest will be good. I'll try to take a picture and, and put that on the Instagram account, which is thebendark on Instagram and you can you can see see what I'm talking about there. I've also talking of fine pruning wires, been trying to propagate the neighbor's grapevine. 
It's wonderful. This this temporary garden we're in will probably be here for five years, of which two are already down. And so the idea is that we don't spend a great deal. It is a garden from cuttings, from clippings, from flagrant stealing, from sowing seed. For example, when I was planting it up this spring, I allowed myself one trip to the garden centre to buy a little pot of napita and chopped off all the new growth to be fresh, green, soft cuttings. Now those plants are growing on and I have eight napita for next year. I wanted to have a grapevine. I love grapevines. It's something that I talk about in the book. I love the fact that they are ultimately incredibly malleable. They are liquid growth that sets hard, almost like epoxy resin, sets hard under the influence of years, not not minutes like epoxy resin. And you can shape them so beautifully. And I just love the gnarled trunk and the way that in spring it beads with that green growth and then comes rushing out as almost as if someone had squeezed a great big reservoir of green underneath the soil and it splurts out like like a toothpaste tube that's been stabbed with, with holes. I love them so much. And even though you can actually buy Venus vitifer, sorry, Vitus vinifera, the, the grapevine, unnamed cultivars of in big box stores, incredibly, incredibly cheaply now. I wanted one with a little more story behind it. And our brilliant neighbours, Manfred and Aneta, have this great vine that they grow along a fence and it reaches frequent tendrils out into our garden. So I thought, well, that's a, a sign that, that I should have those tendrils so I've just snipped off the the ends of the ones coming into our into our garden and stuck them in a very very sharp draining mix 75% vermiculite 25% potting compost because I think that the problem with these is going to be rot vines are dry country things there are problems with with botrytises and funguses and bacterias out in the fields where they have wind upon them and i am going to be putting them somewhere warm and closed and sheltered and even putting a great clear plastic bag on the top of them so i thought that while while they're reminding leaves i left one leaf when i was taking it from right from the very end and half a leaf if i was taking a cutting from slightly lower down I left on the plant. While those are going to be in the damp, I want the roots to be dried pretty sharp, the new roots that come out. So they're in that good mix. And hopefully, set out there in a black pot under clear plastic in a warm but not sun-blasted space, they should start developing leaves, roots rather, within a couple of weeks. And if they don't, it was a, a noble and very cheap failure and I'll have to go around and, and beg some woody cuttings in the winter to stick into the, to the pots and, and produce a, a more traditional vine uh, from propagation. It's a joy, this way of gardening, particularly after years as head gardener in a place where results needed to be instant but money was almost no object. This is the opposite. It is building up my stock. It is collecting my 
my future colours together and, and nursing them through these early years and waiting for them to explode in that brilliant fourth year or maybe that fifth summer when I will when I will leave the garden, uh, close the gate, having having something that was truly ours, and then that can fade away and, and fall to nothing under the under the, the hands of our next tenants. But there will be something of us remaining for a little bit. The little the little ghosts of us are versions of of, of dad's resurgent banana. I think that is as much gardening as is worth talking about. I've obviously been doing a lot of deadheading, deadheading the cosmoses which are up and out. I'm thankful for my lax deadheading at the end of last year because we have a lot of seedlings just chucking themselves up from the borders for when I stopped in about August deadheading the best of the cosmos so that they might produce more. Those garden-sown ones haven't flowered yet, but the, the ones that I started off inside have. And I've been deadheading roses, deadheading the climbing roses to hopefully produce another flush. I've been leaving the rambling roses, obviously, because they won't flower again. And I want the hips, I want the, the red on the fence when it comes to winter. A little, a little holly we have. I've found a little holly and I've been nurturing it out from from the fence where it's always been cut very close to. I'm going to try and do a tier of holly, a wedding cake, but a semicircular wedding cake with a flat back against the fence, almost as if it's a wedding cake emerging through the fence, like, like Terminator 2 in wedding cake form. And that is bedecked with berries on the lower tier. So we will have some red we will have some some flashes of, of festive colour from that, if nothing else. It's a wonderful time in the garden, now just past the summer solstice, where the rush seems to have slowed. There isn't that same race to flowering. Now the, the sprinters, the early dashers, have done their work. The slower plodders can, can carry on, the asters making very unhurried progress towards flower. The Woodbeckias doing doing bud so slowly. There's a different energy about the place. And plants are starting to produce hip and fruit. Autumn is actually already with us, even though a few months off. The apple tree at the end of the garden is just starting to do that little winnowing shed where it decides how many apple as it thinks it can take to to glorious juicy ripeness and lets the others all fall off on the ground as as the perfect size little little things to shoot out of a catapult so i'm enjoying i'm enjoying that and i'm enjoying the fact that i'll be here for a month or so before we take a, a trip through estonia latvia and the other baltic states i'll be here for a month or so to enjoy the garden to watch my tomatoes climb and my fruits redden. I hope that you all will have some time to do some plant watching over the next week and month. In other updates, obviously the, the Gardens Trust talk that I'm 
going to be doing is a great highlight. You should tune in for that. I'll post the details when I have them. I've recorded a, another series of interviews for one of the mashup episodes, one of the Dear Gardener episodes, where I, where I go around speaking to people across the horticultural world, across the geographical world as well. So that will be out probably next week. If you want to support the podcast and the various costs associated with it and boost my ego of course then you can help out at ko-fi that's k-o hyphen f-i slash ben dark otherwise you can find me on instagram you can send me an email at at the garden log podcast at gmail.com i really must change that to something more dear gardenry and i will speak to you all again very, very soon. Goodbye. 